what I'm advocating against is the cradle to the grave over policing of the behaviour of people with psychosocial disabilities and the conflation of our behaviour as risk. Welcome to Psychocinematic, a podcast where we analyse depictions of mental illness and disability in popular films and TV. I'm your host, Stephanie Fornasia. If you love our podcast and want to give us some support, make sure you're following Psychocinematic Podcast on Instagram, TikTok and Twitter. And check out our website, psychocinematicpodcast.com. For access to special bonus content, episodes, early access, stickers and contribute to our regular fundraisers, join our Patreon. Starting from $3.50 a month, you can be the coolest psychocinematic listener there is. Hello, psychocinemaniacs. I just want to start today's episode firstly with a content warning. My guest Sarah talks very in-depth about the child protection system in Australia, including touching on abuse and child removal. If this episode brings up anything for you, Lifeline is available on 13114 and Beyond Blue on 1300 224636. Secondly, we had an amazing chat, which was disrupted by multiple interruptions from planes, birds, customers of the cafe Sarah was joining me from, as well as sensory intrusions like direct sunlight and a very cool change. We talk in the episode about how much cognitive and sensory work goes into neurodivergent speakers presenting and public speaking as well as they do, and how a lot of editing of the final product is common, so it can look like it's an easy breezy experience. Which gave me a bit of a conundrum, as I really wanted to share that experience for Sarah in this episode as it happened who herself is an incredibly well-spoken neurodivergent advocate and had to manage a lot of external disruptors in her recording. However, for the sake of being succinct and efficient in providing a podcast for you, I did do some aforementioned editing. I really want to encourage you, however, to follow Sarah on Instagram at sreader underscore studio as she provides such brilliant, honest insight into the AudiHD experience as a mother, advocate, and just generally cool person. Enjoy. Well, I will start today by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land that I'm sitting on today, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay respects to elders past, present and emerging. And I'd like to welcome to the podcast, Sarah Langston. Welcome to Psychocinematic. I'm very excited to have you. Thank you for having me. And what country are you on today? So I'm on Gundungur and Darug country, so up in the Blue Mountains in the Greater Sydney area. Well, apparently that's being debated at the moment. But what's not debated is that it's Gundungur and Darug country. So that's where I'm calling from. Excellent. Um, yeah, I've been wanting you to be on the podcast for a while now. I think we were talking about it maybe a year ago, <laughs> at least a long time ago. That is pretty much how hard it is to schedule me into a calendar. <laughs> so Me too, though. But um, there's a lot I wanted to pick your brain about. But before we talk about what we're going to talk about today, um, do you want to sort of share a little bit about yourself, who you are, what's your background, what um, you like? Yeah, so I primarily I'm an independent disability advocate and I work, I mean, I work where the work is. I got into this line of work because of lived experience and I'll go into that more in a bit. I do that and I'm studying a Master's of Public and Social Policy. I also do systemic advocacy work. So I work independently because some of the issues I work on, so I work mainly on child protection issues, access to justice issues uh, and education. And something I have noted in the advocacy 
sector can be a bit of a difficulty is often advocates who work for organisations, while the pay is better, you are a bit hampered in what you can say because quite a lot of advocacy organisations are funded by DCJ through the DFAT program. Do you mind just sharing what those acronyms mean for yeah, so us people? DCJ is Department <laughs> of Communities and Justice, so um, basically mm-hmm. Cops and Child Protection. Mm-hmm. And DFAT is in New South Wales and it's the Disability Futures Advocacy Program. And I mean, funding is great, but it is a known thing that often where your funding can impact how freely people can speak. Mm-hmm or how stridently. So quite a lot of my advocacy is pretty blunt and to the point. And that is really, I think, at times only possible because I am independent. I like being independent. It does not pay well. <laughs> totally broke, but it's good. But like you're not representing a particular organisation with a particular no. policy no. or value or no. stance. So you represent yourself in supporting yep. people, which gives you a lot more freedom to support in the way that you want to support. It does. I think so in terms of the community that I work in, I only work with a very specific kind of client. So so I work with mothers or uh, parents with psychosocial disabilities and their families uh, and their children. So sometimes I might be representing the child in a school who is not being included in an education setting. Sometimes I will be supporting the mother to navigate the child protection system, the law, uh, like family law, etc. And I mean, the reason I work with that community is because I myself am autistic, have ADHD. I have lived experience of contact with child protection. I have lived experience of contact with the legal system, police, education. I also come from an education-heavy family. My dad was a principal, et cetera, et cetera. So I choose to work in our community because I feel really invested in the future for mm. our community. It's, we're very underserved, so it's really important to me. Hugely. To work with them. How did you get into this space initially? I fell into it <laughs> accidentally. It's a bit of a rowdy story. Um, Please tell us. <laughs> <laughs> not sure I can tell all of it. I got into the advocacy space kind of by accident. I mean, realistically, it's probably where I was always going to end up because I was a very mouthy political kid. <laughs> and, I, I mean, I remember giving my dad a uh, sermon from the Mount when I was like six or seven about refugees and I grew up in a house where we had very, very vigorous dinner table discussions about politics, philosophy. And I think I, yeah, I first really became aware of inequity and injustice and the thought of doing social justice work very young, like probably mm-hmm. eight or nine. But um, how I got into what I'm doing now, well, I used to be a teacher and I've worked in marketing. I was a journalist very briefly. I was not very good at it. Too stressful. <laughs> I was just pretty focused on parenting my kid. My, so I am a single parent. My child is disabled as well. And he has quite complex high needs at times. And um, navigating that whole journey, I was really seeing how uh, messy things are for mm. families with psychosocial disability and along that journey I also realized that I also was autistic and had ADHD mm-hmm. and through that I got involved in some grassroots NDIS groups I didn't know anyone at all in the advocacy sector 
I didn't know anyone in disability activism, knew nothing about, I'm still learning like at a breakneck pace. Mm. And I got into a rather public scrap with another disability advocate. And that was how I actually met a lot of other advocates and started forming friendships with them, Mm. learned a lot from them. And I'm still friends with some of the people I met during that kind of event. <laughs> so yeah, so it sort of brought your community together. Yes, well, kind of. I I more I met <laughs> I met a lot of other people who were also regarded as very difficult, even mm-hmm. within the advocacy space, because there is a bit of a thing in the disability advocacy community. There's kind of sub minorities, mm-hmm. and there is a group of us who are regarded as like very difficult. <laughs> Um, I became friends with a lot of them and lo and behold, they're all autistic. <laughs> but um, yeah, so that was how I met a lot of people. I learned a lot from them. They taught me a lot. It really opened my eyes to a lot of things. And then sort of contemporaneous to that, I had my own experiences of, it, it happened all around the same time, my own experiences of contact with the federal court and the child protection system. I had my own brush with the mandatory reporting system and my behaviour, how I spoke, my very common, normal, autistic way of presenting was misread and conflated with risk. And so I was on the receiving end of a a child protection report. And I mean, I think... Thing, right a lot of the women I work so all of the women I work with are MD and my experience which is like theirs was there was so much I didn't know because I was undiagnosed and I didn't realize how much things like um, sensory inputs cognitive overload from trying to do tasks Something that I find really interesting, actually, about whenever I see autistic people doing media, doing advocates and stuff, doing media, doing public facing stuff, something I notice, and I, I understand why people in the media edit things this way, something I notice is that it's so put together. And I know myself, anytime I've done interviews, it takes me five times as long as it would for a um, neurotypical person. And it's a very personal choice. But for me, I prefer to have the process included because I think people actually don't understand well, I mean, ND people do, but people don't understand well how much work ND people, depending on the their needs, mm, uh, yeah. how much work we have to put into just having a conversation. Yeah. I think that goes for disabled people generally too. Yes, that's right. And I think too with invisible disabilities, people don't grasp sometimes the impact of the environment on capacity and behaviour for MD people. And Mm. even when you tell them, even when they you tell them, they it's almost like they don't believe it until they see it. And I mean, do I think it should be that way? Do I think we should have to show distress or difficulty to be believed of course not but I also think there's a place for visibility so Mm. you know on my Instagram I do try to um talk about uh and show some of like stimming and like (laughs) I posted a picture recently of my attempts to cook with um (laughs) dyspraxia and my just absolutely ravaged (laughs) stovetop 
Yeah, so I'm like, and I'm okay these days with some of my need for adjustments and struggles and stuff to be more visible. That wasn't always the case though. And Mm. I think when we think about masking, I'm glad to see more people talking about uh, why it's important to stop telling people to not mask because actually it's it's a survival strategy and it does mm. keep people safe. Yeah, um, especially if they're not ready to share what their needs are or they're not at the point. It's also just not safe. It's also just not safe. Yeah. It's also just actually yeah. not safe. Like a lot of the women that I work with are women who can't mask and as a result their children have been removed from their care. Mm-hmm. So masking is a survival strategy that not everyone can master and it's usually autistic women who are excellent maskers Mm. who uh, don't get picked up by the child protection system it's the ones who can't mask and I'm in that category I'm a terrible masker (laughs) I couldn't mask (laughs) and and I also had no idea that my behavior my language was unusual because as it turns out my whole family is ND and all my friends I've collected over the years also ND Mm -hmm. so everyone around me was welcoming kind of like me in one way or another so it wasn't until I it really wasn't until I had a child Mm -hmm. and I started to have contact with these very normative institutions that then I was I started to have to face that normativity and like no actually you are weird you You don't fit that the way you speak and yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I had no idea before that. <laughs> and that's part of how I was diagnosed. Yeah, I think that's a common story that people, have, you know, they start having kids and they start having, you know, teachers or early childhood educators saying, hey, I think your kid might have some needs or be autistic or um, mm. ND in some way and then going through that process with pediatricians yep. making them go, oh, hang on. He's just like when I was a kid, so I don't see yeah, it exactly. as being any different, but uh, it seems that we're, we're both autistic, yeah. Yeah, so the most common age of um, diagnosis for women is 36 to 38 and it's through their children. So that's for autistic and ADHD women. Really sad, really, when you think about it. It is, you know, there is... We women of my generation millennial elder millennials (laughs) are really the missed generation Mm. and so we are in their um you know late 30s to 40s now and early 50s we really were missed and then of course you have like my mum was just diagnosed with ADHD as well Mm. I think too in some ways probably when my parents were kids there was a large amount of the nd community who now would get a diagnosis who back then were just things were different i think people could exist in the community and be nd a bit more easily in some ways or they would end up in institutional yeah it was one yeah. or the other yeah and now i think because of a whole bunch of social changes that have happened and institutional changes we've actually seen this tightening down like it's due to um standardization mm, mm. and weirdly enough even even though there is more like social policy and stuff now it is actually clamped down on communities and there's a lot more policing of behavior than there ever was yeah is what I'm trying to say there so what I think has happened like my main hustle as an advocate is trying to change the way that as a culture we police on the basis of behavior and so The way that psychosocial disability shows up is through behaviour, primarily. Mm -hmm. Our information processing difficulties show up in our behaviour. 
um, sensory overload shows up in behaviour. Communication differences shows up in behaviour. So I work across child protection and education mostly and the legal system because they are the three places, actually a bit less so in health, although it does happen there too, but these three systems are the three main places where over the last hundred years, we've seen an increasing policing of people on the basis of behaviour. A hundred years ago, I think there was, as I said, two sort of ways this went, which was there was a wider tolerance for eccentricity and people being a bit, you know, odd. Weirdness was like a little bit more allowed until it wasn't and then you got put in an institution. Yeah, or jail probably. Or jail, mm. yeah. Or you were socially ostracised. Mm. And and the people who were allowed to be eccentric, of course, were white people. Yeah. Men mostly People too. who had money. Yeah, that hasn't changed. So if yeah. you are a person of colour, if you are poor, if you are a woman, those are intersections. You are the most likely to have your rights eroded as a person with psychosocial disability. You're the most likely to end up in uh, still in an institution, so in a mental yeah. health facility, in a locked ward you know, you are the most likely to be on the receiving end of a child protection report. So what, yeah, what we've seen though over the last 100 years, and it has really ramped up in the last 20 years, is this tightening of focus from institutions on psychosocial disability in particular. So a few fast facts. Psychosocial disability is within the disability community, people with psychosocial disabilities are the worst off. We are the poorest. We face the most violence from police in education settings, in every setting. Like I said, the most likely to be institutionalised. We have children with psychosocial disabilities have the highest rates of suspension, expulsion from education settings. We also have the highest rates of DV, sexual assault, all of these things. You'll need to put content warnings. <laughs> um, yeah, everything I do well, is yeah. just a giant content warning, basically. <laughs> and this has gotten worse. This has gotten much, mm. much worse in the last mm. 20 years. And the reasons why are to do with the standardisation of the education system and the standardisation of the child protection system. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in education, we've seen the rise of things like PBL, so positive behaviour for learning, which is very behaviourist. And we've seen in the child protection space, the rise of the use of SDM, which is um, structured decision making, which is basically ticky box child protection. Mm-hmm. That came about after the Wood Report, like it was rolled out under the National Child Protection Framework in about 2009. That's where mandatory reporting came in. So it's like very mm-hmm. recent. Yeah. It's, it's, it's quite young as policy approaches go. And what SDM is, is essentially a bunch of flowcharts and instead of child protection workers kind of doing I guess more intimate personal work with families a lot of decisions child protection decisions are now made through following a bunch of flowcharts it's very uh it's very dehumanizing it's Mm. it's very uh depersonalized and the reason it, it was rolled out was because of how completely crap social work was done before that, they were thinking SDM would improve things. It was the thing. It was the trendy thing in like 2009. But 
since then, what we've seen is that standardizing human systems actually entrenches inequity. It doesn't resolve it. Yep. And and I mean the simplest way to explain why is because rather than bias existing within one social worker or one office, like, you know, a couple of bad eggs in one area, what happens is it's an example of an information cascade. So you have bias comes in the top of the system and then spreads to the whole yep. system. Yeah. Rather so than it's a flares. System of bias. It's standardized bias. <laughs> yeah. So when you look at like the Wood Report and the recommendations and the targets of the original child protection framework, the two groups that were targeted was people with psychosocial parents with psychosocial disabilities and Aboriginal families. Yeah. And as a result, rates of removal for um, Aboriginal families fifteen times the average, and rates of removal for um, disabled mothers ten times the national average so mm. it hasn't helped at all no anyway do we need to relate this to Aaron Brockovich summit <laughs> well this is really good context for why you do what you do and how yeah. because you you also study in the policy space as well you really get it which is why yeah. you're the perfect person in the role you have so my question is, when you're advocating for families with psychosocial disabilities, mm. what does that look like for you and how do you help those families? Or mostly mothers, I'm assuming. I play by the rules. It's the simplest way to put it. And I teach mm-hmm. them how, how to protect themselves. Mm-hmm. So the reason that I do both systemic and individual work is because I acknowledge that I actually can't, on my own, with one family, make the system just. I can't. Yeah, yeah it's impossible. It's not possible. So I do systemic work so that I can sleep at night, <laughs> basically. Yep. And I learned how to do this from watching someone who was supporting me. So I should give credit for this uh, idea to the person who taught me how to do it, um, which is uh, Lydia Shelley of Shelley Legal in uh, Parramatta. Lydia is a really amazing advocate. She has a background in human rights law. And she now works in criminal law and family law. She taught me survival skills, basically. Mm. She's a highly practical woman. And what I learned from her was that there is a place and a time for anger and rage at the system. But that place and time is not when you're in front of a judge, is not when you're in the same room as police, and it is not Mm. when you're in the same room as a social worker. I have a few sayings in my work now, and one of them is, if you get into a cage match with a social worker, you don't win. And so it's just practical. It is so depressing that it is that way. It is so depressing that there is so little tolerance. And it is dangerous for people who can't mask and can't deploy some of these skills. And those people need our protection. They are very vulnerable in the system. And I should say that it doesn't make them unsafe parents. And that's a very important thing to remember. Just because someone might be emotional around police or emotional around someone who works in childcare, it does not make them an unsafe parent. Mm. And the recent, I'm getting off on a tangent here, but the recent report from the Disability Royal Commission, which looked at parents' experiences of contact with child protection, disabled parents' experiences of contact with child protection, a really key quote from that paper was that the key form of discrimination against parents with disabilities in this country is the conflation of disability with risk. 
Mm-hmm. So there is a there is an assumption that is so invisible and so inherent and so deep mm. in the way that people who do social work work and in the way policing is done and in the way the justice system runs, there is just a deep assumption that if you are a disabled parent, you are an unsafe parent. Mm. There is no evidence to support that. Yeah, And that is what the Royal Commission report covers. Mm-hmm. There is nothing inherent to disability that makes anyone an unsafe parent. What makes someone an unsafe parent is a lack of support. Yes. So the risk factor in a family where a parent is disabled is not the parent's disability. Mm. It is the lack of support that parent has. So it is actually the social model applies here. If we want children of disabled parents to be safe, we need to support them to Mm -hmm. parent. We need to augment their parenting. We need to be an active and involved community. And we need to change the way that we do social work. We need to change the way we interact with disabled parents in education spaces. And we need to change from a report model to a support model. Because until we do that, we're going to see very high numbers of children from families where a parent is disabled entering the out-of-home care system. And is that already the case? Oh, hugely. Yeah, I knew the answer to that question. Massively. I would actually say that the majority of children in out-of-home care right now come from parents who are disabled. I mean, our removal rate is 10 times the national average, so you do the math. Well, I know that in Victoria there's a high proportion. I think it's like 40% or maybe more than that of kids in out-of-home care are disabled themselves. Yeah, and we know that many disabilities are genetic, so it stands to reason that even if the parent's undiagnosed, they may also have a disability. So we, we know, we have the stats, we know that this is an issue. So the majority of children in Oak are either from parents who are disabled or parents who are Aboriginal. That is the fact. And until we actually learn as a culture that being disabled does not make you an inherently unsafe parent, and until we learn that what makes children unsafe is a lack of support, for their families and parents, we are going to have huge numbers of kids going into Oak. And, you know, look at New South Wales right now. I really went off on a tangent. <laughs> no, this is really um, good chat. Kate Washington, who is the new Minister for Disabilities and Inclusion in New South Wales, she's a good woman, she's an um, ex-lawyer, she came out in the media last week calling for more foster carers. So she was talking about the fact that at the moment... The out-of-home care system is in crisis. There are enormous numbers of children in Oak. Oak stands for out-of-home care. (laughs) The situation is really bad. At the moment, out-of-home care as a system is crumbling just from numbers. And I think when people think of foster care, they have this Mary Poppins idea (laughs) of like kids are not going to like families, like even dysfunction, and it's not going to families. What is actually happening in out-of-home care at the moment is children are being put up in hotels, Mm -hmm. in Airbnbs, and the state government is paying through the nose for any kind of accommodation and then having 24-7 support workers who change by the day. So these children have no stable carers. The conditions are often pretty crappy Mm. and I've heard from one foster carer that an emergency placement package is like $250,000 for a month of care. Imagine if we put that much money into families. Yes, it's so much money. It's so much money. To give you an idea, I'm an NDIS participant, right? 
My plan over two years, 24 months, is $42,000. The level of support that I receive from my plan has changed my life. Mm -hmm. It has expanded my parenting capacity and my capacity to do things with my life just massively like yesterday I got 100% on a uni quiz and drove on the highway first time yeah. and finally learning to drive at 40 the reason that I couldn't before was because of my disabilities yeah. but I'm finally learning to drive I'm completing my master's I'm working in a job that I love it's very hard but I love it um you know I'm dipping my toe in the waters of politics none of this was possible for me without my NDIS funding the most important thing is I'm a better, safer, happier parent yeah. because of the NDIS. Now, that's $42,000 over 24 months. Compare that to $250,000 for four weeks of care. What do you think is more fiscally responsible? You don't have to be very good at math to figure it out, yes. I have dyscalculia. And even I can see what's a better deal. And so we shouldn't have to make economic arguments. It's actually really gross that we have to make these economic arguments. But you think that they would make a difference, those economic arguments, if anything? Yes, even very hard left-leaning, the reddest of communists would still want to see public funds being spent in a way that is sensible. And that is just not a sensible use of money. It's a waste of money. So imagine if we poured for a child $250,000 in a month in terms of heavy intensive support into that family. I would say in the majority of cases, the child would be able to stay in a family of origin. And we know, we know, we know from the stolen generation, we know how harmful it is to remove children from their families of origin. It does huge damage that cannot be. And it's not like these kids are given lifelong support to recover from the trauma of removal. They're not. No, they're given nothing. And there's nothing. When when a child is removed, a lot of people don't realise this, but for the parents, when the child is removed from their care, they are not given any support. There's no counselling, nothing. They take the kid and then they leave the family. That's it. That's it. There's nothing. There's no support. And so obviously um, a lot of mothers who have their children removed from their care um, if they didn't have substance abuse issues before, that's a very common response coping strategy. Mm. If they didn't have crap mental health before, they do after that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the rates of admission go through the roof. So removal is really damaging. We yeah. need to find ways to not be doing this. Um, it should be reserved for the most extreme cases where there is literally no other option. And that's a, that is a bar that should be a lot higher. Mm-hmm. And the reasons that it is that way are systemic. Yeah, It is because, at least in New South Wales, for the last 12 years, if we look at why there are so many kids in out-of-home care, it's it's not really rocket science. For the last 12 years, we had a very conservative Liberal government that didn't like to spend on support for families mm. and also really enjoyed over-policing uh, women, yes. uh, women with uh, psychosocial disabilities. So we saw, oh, this stuff is so complex, I get really hungry. <laughs> <about> um, <laughs> the out-of-home care system today has been made born yeah and it is not because of those families it is not because of those children and if I can add my perspective as well from yes go on please um, do (laughs) um, from working briefly in the disability services support for kids and out-of-home care space 
The child protection organisation is a mess, at least in Queensland and in Victoria, which are the two systems I've worked in briefly, in that it's under-resourced, underfunded. There's new graduate social workers and not even social workers sometimes in these case management roles. The retention rate is so low. They'll just cycle through case manager after case manager after case manager. So there's no longevity. There's no relationship built with these kids. There are very low-skilled workers who are in the most complex space working with complex situations that haven't got the capacity, the skills and the understanding of the system in order to work effectively. Not all case managers, not all child protection workers, but many of them. And it's, yeah, and they make trauma worse. It, it increases the breakages of attachment, which increases the trauma, which increases the mental health issues and the difficulty for a child to feel safe. And it's just constant <laughs> and it's so frustrating. It's an awful system that really, if fewer children were ending up there, and a lot more diversion was going on. And if there was more social and community support and, you know, a mass, I mean, we need a massive expansion of the NDIS. That's why I get, mm. I'm, I'm very glad to see um, Jordan Siljan has been mm. very vocal. He's amazing. About res- oh, he's such amazing. Like he's just, I get goosebumps whenever <laughs> I see him speak. Um, I, I just admire him so much. I believe that disability is a bipartisan issue. Yeah, it's, it's not a, a political issue. No, it's not. It's, it, it's, it's both highly political and apolitical. Like mm. it's both. And look, I think that there uh, needs to be a strong alliance between left-leaning parties on disability because I tell you what, conservative parties like the Liberals and Nationals uh, very clearly do not value people with disability. They see us as a drain on the economy. Mm-hmm. They certainly do not value um, disabled single mothers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, well, we just look at it historically in what policies they've put in place. They've removed supports more than they've put supports in place. It's just a fact. Yeah, exactly. Look, whenever you have a fiscally conservative government, people with disabilities will suffer Mm -hmm. uh, because we are expensive. But, you know, we also have human rights. Yes, and value. With the rollout of the NDIS, we have this thing called the Aptos Tables. The Aptos Tables basically breaks up whose responsibility it is to handle certain things. And mental health care, especially complex mental health care, any mental health care falls under the states so it's considered a state responsibility so in the divvying up of whose job is what the state's got mental health i'm still learning about the exact reasons as to why this happened but basically the states went uh yeah nah the ndis can handle psychosocial disability because the two terms are a little bit interchangeable Mm -hmm. and so care for people with psychosocial disabilities and mental health under the states collapsed Mm -hmm. but only 20 percent of people with psychosocial disabilities are actually accepted onto the ndis many are bounced back and that's getting even more restricted Mm -hmm. at the moment the NDIA are really trying to reject a lot of people who are applying on the grounds of psychosocial disabilities probably because the number of applications has increased so what we saw was around the same time within about the same five to ten years as policing of mental health and psychosocial disability went up, provision of services went down. Mm-hmm. And so that, over the last 15 years, is largely, I think, responsible for the very high number of children in out-of-home care 
from homes where a mother has complex mental health or psychosocial disability because there's so much monitoring and policing going on but no provision of care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess that also yeah. explains why there's lots of calls to improve the NDIS, particularly Jordan Steele John wanting an ADHD inclusion and review of ADHD yes, assessment and inquiry, inquiry which will yep. hopefully means that um, yep. there's more support. Thank you to Jordan for that yeah. as an ADHD. <laughs> the way I work. The women that I work with and their children, usually both generations are being policed at some level for their behaviour. Now, in the case of education, usually their children are struggling in the school system in some way, or they may be struggling in the healthcare system, or they might come to me because of their involvement in the family court. And family court is a terrible place to be a disabled mother especially if you have psychosocial disability, it is massively weaponized against women in mm. family courts. It's really awful. Yeah. And then you also see that the mother's behavior is being policed too. So if I had mm-hmm. to sum up my advocacy in a sentence, it would be that what I'm resisting, what I'm advocating against is the cradle to the grave over-policing of the behaviour of people with psychosocial disabilities and the conflation of our behaviour as risk. What I want to see is support before judgment, reporting and punitive measures because that's all Mm -hmm. that we've gotten historically. Yeah, so how it would work with a family, if a family comes to me, it's always mothers. So if I'll just say mothers. I know like some people use language of parents, but majority is mothers. So a mother will come to me and she's usually very frightened and very uh, disempowered and is usually in a pickle legally um, or with child protection and basically doesn't know how to get out of it. So what mm-hmm. I do is I use SDM in my work. So I see a mother through the eyes of DCJ. So I will look at her and I will look at how child protection would see her. I kind of map out her protective factors, her supports, you know, what she has going for her already. And then I look at the gaps and then we start to work on the gaps. So I look at scaffolding. And as I said, I learned this way of doing things from Olivia Shelley. It's that teach a man to fish kind of thing. At the same time as getting to work on the systemic vulnerabilities, I am at the same time trying to, I guess, scaffold skills as well, self-protection skills. And what I want to say is like when I've explained this approach before to someone I met at a party, uh, I do occasionally go to them. I hate them and I usually (laughs) sit outside. But someone was like, oh, so you're just teaching women how to manipulate the system. I am not. Because when we identify the gaps in their supports and we get to work on filling those gaps, I'm not teaching them to lie. I'm teaching them to support themselves meaningfully. So actually their life does improve. (laughs) And saying that they're manipulating the system is assuming that the system works. The system is very broken. (laughs) Exactly. But it's not not like what I'm doing is not superficial. I'm actually scaffolding their lives. Mm. I mean, as someone said to me once, you're doing the work that DCJ should be doing. Yeah. And that's true. Yeah. So I'm, I'm teaching. I'm like, okay, look, if a child protection worker came and ran you through the system, this is what they would see. Sometimes I say that, sometimes I don't. Sometimes it depends on the person and how vulnerable they're feeling and stuff, obviously. But I start to try and get some of their needs met 
so that their parenting capacity increases at the same time as teaching them how to get connected to legal, how to get connected to, you know, more advocacy, because often what I do is a bit short term. Mm. So I'm very careful. I limit how many families I work with at any given time because vicarious trauma is a thing Mm -hmm. and um, sustainability is important. So big shout out to Disability Advocacy New South Wales. They were my advocates back in the day. I refer so many people onto them. They are amazing. They advocate for like two thirds of the population in New South Wales who have disabilities. They're just incredible. So yeah, I start to uh, look where the gaps are and work on those. And so I use the same tools that child protection use to divert women away. When we start, we start with, I kind of think of it as like zones, like green, orange and red. So I'll try in my mind think of it as um, how much risk are they at of involvement with child protection if not already involved and if already involved how close are we to removal Mm -hmm. so if we're in the red space immediately I would start documenting everything (laughs) always document everything the two rules of advocacy Mm. document everything never go to a meeting alone ever Good, good advice. Uh-huh. And the third thing, do everything in writing. So I will firstly ensure that if they're already involved with job protection, I will be with them at every meeting. If I can't be there, I will ask them to either reschedule, take a friend. Even there's been times where it's been really on the line and the person has been like, they are saying they have to come. And I'm like, well, then you say to them, can I record the meeting on my phone? And if they decline, that's on them. But mm. you need to have a record or a witness of some kind to that meeting. You never go to a meeting. <laughs> Why is that important for them? Accountability because mm-hmm. women are victimised in this. I'm not saying, like, look, there are a lot of really bloody great social workers out there. I'm not saying, like, everyone in these systems is out to get women. What I am saying is that when you add an advocate, the tone changes, the vibe changes. It's like, I mean, as parents, we know that we are less likely to be dicks. <laughs> <laughs> someone else is there it's just true like I'm it helps it makes us aware of ourselves we monitor our own uh, behavior and interactions and people are more likely to be on their best behavior around mm-hmm. vulnerable clients so having a witness it makes people aware they're being observed yeah as a result they're less likely to do crappy things it's just human nature. Is it also helpful to have that extra pair of eyes and ears? So for that mother who's likely to be very overwhelmed in that situation, there's yes. a reference yes. point that they can, did I get that right? You know, yes, is that what happened? Right. Having that validation. And even in um, like, you know, I do things like I'll go to a psychology appointment with a mum, even with like a beautiful practitioner who's totally an ally and on the mother's side because of information processing challenges and communication needs sometimes it's great to have another person there to make notes and remember things and debrief with because of processing differences we might misremember something or we might miss a critical piece of information that could really impact us later so it's just in every possible way it's a great idea to have an advocate with you so always take an advocate even a friend a family member or anyone I navigated all these systems during lockdowns and my advocate because of COVID restrictions couldn't attend in person. So during a meeting with DCJ, my advocate zoomed in and I had a laptop open. (laughs) That's doable. Yeah. I've had situations where I've had people try and grab me for a chat 
People, so this is a flex. People are in positions of power. They love verbaling. They like to catch you for a chat because it's a contestable record. Mm-hmm. It's not official. It's just you and them alone. That's right. There's there's plausible deniability. Mm. And so when that happens, I will refuse to go into a room alone with them. And if I am caught alone with them and they try to raise a serious issue, I will say, and this is a really hard skill to develop, but it's you can practice in the mirror. I say this to the women that I, I work with, practice these things in the mirror hmm. between times. It takes all your strength because it feels scary and resistant and like resistance. But I, in this situation that happened recently, picked up my phone. I said, please wait. And I dialed out to my co-parent and I put him on speaker. Mm-hmm. And I said to my co-parent, can you just stay on the line? X person wants to speak to me. I just need you to be part of the conversation. And the person was like, oh, never mind, never mind. We'll talk about it another time. <laughs> so stuff like that's really powerful and important. Mm. Yeah, and it's your right to have that. It is your you right. You should be able to exercise that yes. right. Yeah. Yes, so every person, regardless of disability or whatever, every citizen has a right to an advocate. If you are ever in a situation where someone declines you access to an advocate, it's a pretty good sign that person is dodgy as. Mm -hmm. If that happens to you, my advice would be to, as soon as you possibly can, sit down with pen and paper or a text message on your phone, a voice note, however is accessible for you, and make a record of the conversation what was said you can also do this is a little flex you can uh write an email to the person just just noting down just saying as per our conversation (laughs) here is what was said send them the email with just the dot points doesn't have to be detailed of quotes of what was said it gives them an opportunity to contest the record Mm -hmm. and if they don't that is taken as a grant. Yeah. But that is what was said yeah um but it's also good because it makes them aware that you are document yes which is a really good message to have to send that's right that you know how to protect yourself Mm. and that you're writing things down look in the end there are multiple ways to protect yourself in the system and these are the skills that I teach women I teach women how to protect themselves because this is stuff I did not know Mm. and I have learned through my own experiences and it does keep you safe it does change the dynamic I would still say wherever humanly possible have an advocate because it's just such a great human shield Mm. also advocates often might know of resources you don't know about they might have skills they can help facilitate meetings they can help everyone in the meeting regulate as well as keeping notes people who work in an organization like disability advocacy new south wales they have case meetings like Mm. whole team meetings And that's great because you can then draw on the ideas of a whole team of people with a huge range of collective experience, which is amazing. Yeah. And it also helps going into one of those meetings when you've got, you know, you've got a principal, you've got the teacher, you've got someone from the department, you've got maybe an allied health member, and then it's just you as a parent. That's so intimidating. So overwhelming. Yes. And especially for autistic parents, because quite a lot of us don't like groups. Yes. And we can find communication stuff tricky at the best of times Mm. but especially in groups where there's uh, multiple streams of communication and dynamic and Mm. social cues and stuff to navigate hierarchy totally it's it's so you know I mean I have walked away from meetings going I'm getting the vibe that I've annoyed someone Mm -hmm. I don't know why (laughs) 
I feel the vibes. There's this mistaken idea that we don't pick up vibes and cues. We do. We don't know what they always mean, mm. but we sense the vibe. Mm. We just don't know what it's about necessarily. So, yeah, so having having an advocate is just so important for so many reasons. Yeah, so that's kind of how I work. I don't think of it as helping them. I think of it as coming alongside and working with them. Um, I really hate that idea of helping. It's really patronising. I really believe in the capacity of mothers. I think they're bloody incredible. Mm. I think there are certain ways of interacting with institutions, certain skills, um, certain survival skills that we're not taught. Mothers are not taught. People are not taught in general. And it's almost like there's this like secret code in that. Of course, institutions don't want us to know all their tricks and grains. No, of course not. They don't want us to know that stuff. (laughs) That's not the deal. So... I teach skills and scaffold so that, say, if when a woman comes to work with me, they start in the red zone. I use the uh, SARA, so that's the safety and risk assessment tools. Assessment scale. That's DCJ. Yeah, that's right. SARA is the acronym they use. I will use that tool. And then what I'm trying to do is move them down, move them down in the risk rating so that if they do come into contact with child protection, that when DCJ come into their home, they find, um, you know, maybe a moderately stressed mum who has a normally messy home and is navigating some issues but is connected to some supports or on the way to more. I try and uh, do visual, so I'll, like, map out supports so that they also have a piece of paper to show a social worker and here's my supports. Because often, oh, there's so many cases where actually a family is really well connected to supports, but because of communication needs, she can't articulate the support she has. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I, again, try to provide some tools to bridge these things. And a very important thing that I do is wherever possible, I try to get women who are undiagnosed through screening because with diagnosis comes access to the NDIS. Mm-hmm. With the NDIS comes support. You know, potentially support workers. So with the NDIS comes support. I just realized we haven't talked about Erin Brockovich <laughs> at all, by the way. Well, let's pivot. Should we try? Let's pivot to, like, I'll stop saying pivot. You wanted to talk about Erin Brockovich today, uh, which is a 2000 film by <laughs> Steven Soderbergh starring Julia Roberts, mm-hmm. as well as Aaron Eckhart and Albert Finney. A brief-ish summary of the plot. In 1993, Erin Brockovich is an unemployed single mother of three children who has recently been injured in a traffic accident with a doctor and is suing him. Her lawyer, Ed Massery, expects to win, but Erin's explosive courtroom behaviour under cross-examination loses her the case, and Ed will not return her phone calls afterwards. One day, he arrives at work to find her in the office apparently working. She says that he told her things would work out and they did not, and that she needed a job. Ed takes pity on Erin and she gets a paid job at the office. Erin has given files for a real estate case where the Pacific Gas and Electric Company, or PG&E, is offering to purchase the home of Donna Jensen, a resident of Hinckley, California. Erin is surprised to see medical records in the file and visits Donna. Donna explains she has several tumours and her husband has Hodgkin's lymphoma, but PG&E has always supplied a doctor at their own expense. Erin asks why they would do that and Donna replies, because of the chromium. 
Erin begins digging into the case and finds evidence that the groundwater in Hinkley is seriously contaminated with carcinogenic hexavalent chromium. But PG&E has been telling Hinkley residents that they use a safer form of chromium. After several days away from the office doing this research, she's fired by Ed until he realises that she was working all the time and sees what she has found out. Rehired, she continues her research and over time visits many Hinkley residents and wins their trust. She finds many cases of tumours and other medical problems in Hinkley. Everyone has been treated by PG&E's doctors and thinks the cluster of cases is just a coincidence, unrelated to the quote-unquote safe chromium. The Jensen's claim for compensation grows into a major class action lawsuit, but the direct evidence only relates to PG&E's Hinkley plant, not to the senior management. To quicken the process, Ed takes the opportunity to arrange for disposition by binding arbitration, but a large majority of the plaintiffs must agree to this. Erin returns to Hinkley and persuades all 634 plaintiffs to go along. While she's there, a man named Charles Embry approaches her to say that he and his cousin were PG&E employees, but his cousin recently died from the poison. The man says he was tasked with destroying documents at PG&E, but, as he said, as it turns out, he wasn't a very good employee. Boom! Embry gives Erin a 1966 memo proving that corporate headquarters knew that the water was contaminated with hexavalent chromium, did nothing about it, and advised the Hinkley operation to keep this secret. The judge orders PG&E to pay a settlement amount of $333 million to be distributed amongst the plaintiffs. In the aftermath, Ed hands Erin her bonus payment for the case, but warns her he has changed the amount. She explodes into a complaint that she deserves more respect, but is astonished to find that he has increased it to $2 million. It's a good scene. And now the real-life Erin Brockovich has continued to advocate for clients who have been affected by similar situations and going against big corporations so families can get appropriate settlements. Why did you want to talk about this film in particular? Well, I think it's important to begin to separate the movie from the real person because yes. they're not really the same thing and Aaron Brockovich as a person is kind of um, a lot more problematic than the Aaron Brockovich in the movie. <laughs> so I want to acknowledge firstly that uh, her politics around autism are not great. Mm-hmm. She was involved quite recently, in, maybe still involved, in a class action lawsuit in the US which was around uh, suing for damages around basically paracetamol or whatever the equivalent in the US is of that being used when babies are in utero and one of the arguments was like that it causes autism. So that's gross. Um, In preparing for this, I watched some of her media interviews and stuff and she was like, uh, you know, it was was on the edge. It was like really um, going down the whole moral panic about, oh, no, all the babies going to be autistic. Like, I don't know, I think that'd be kind of fucking mad myself but um um, i'm like i just i feel like i don't know i feel like autistic people are the future so there's a there's a touch of ableism in in the real life person uh, just a a touch a bit more than a dash i and like when people do this whole panic about autism it is ableist and it is gross and it's like what are we saying so it would be a good thing if we had less autistic babies i mean i don't agree with that i think more more autistic yes (laughs) all the autistic I don't think people realise how much of the world is built via autistic brains as well. Um, Some of the most amazing things that we connect with. Exactly. That's right. And I mean, probably half of the amazing feats of engineering that we have, half of the most like innovative social policy that we have, 
That's autistic brains yes. <laughs> behind that. You know. Technology, all of those things, yeah. Exactly. And we are some of the, particularly autistic women, make some of the most passionate, bloody-minded, strongest social justice advocates. I'm going to look at Greta Thunberg. Look at Grace Tame. Yes. Queens. Totally. Like on my list of social justice swoon moments, there's, you know, Grace Tame, Jordan Still John. <laughs> you know, I actually have a thing. Yeah. If I have a day where I'm like feeling really crappy about the state of the world, I actually go and like watch Grace Tame's speeches and Jordan's speeches. And there's a few others uh, like Greta Thunberg because they they help ground me. Mm. That, you know that saying, look for the helpers? I love yeah. that. I love, I've always loved that. If I'm feeling really crap, I will connect with the work of people I really admire who are making the world a better place and I feel better. So um, that's one of my little survival skills. So, okay, Erin Brockovich. So as a person, her disability politics are a bit probo. Um, She probably wouldn't think of it that way. But if we just look at Erin Brockovich's movie, which is more of my focus, Brockovich the movie is as a bloody good time. I mean, it's it's interesting. Um, so I've rewatched it a couple of times to prep for this, and it's obviously a very simplified. It's a movie, right? It's not supposed to be. Yeah, real. yeah. It's a Hollywoodized version of of what happened. Exactly. I had to keep telling myself as I was watching it because my autistic brain is like, "That's not correct." But that's not correct. <laughs> that's not what you would do. And it, it's supposed to be entertaining. So yeah, look, there's definitely parts of that movie where I, you know, cheer aloud, and where I'm like, it, it is like that, you know. Um, hmm. Some of the feelings in it. Oh, there's a scene actually in the start where she's looking for work mm. and she's struggling to get kids. Like there are a lot of things that are depicted in that movie about being a single parent that are spot on, Yeah, that yeah. are right on the money. Mm. Like having no access to care, having yeah. no easy access to childcare, um, not being able to afford to pay for childcare, yeah. being just desperate for any kind of flexible work that will fit around your children. Like she talks, there's a scene in the start where she talks about in an interview about how she was really interested in geology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that scene she's talking about being really into it and how she was really good at it. Like she was really good at it. And then basically her kid got the measles and her dead shit husband didn't help. And she's like, and yeah, so that basically didn't work out. And I was like, oh, I felt that in my soul. Yeah. <laughs> I was like. And you can tell throughout the film that she's quite smart like she's, she gets her head around law without having any law degree. You know, she's got a really good memory, but she never got the opportunities to study. Yeah. And yeah. like when you know she would have excelled at it. The limitations on mothers, the limitations on women have absolutely nothing to do with women. They have everything mm-hmm. to do with um, it's structural. It's all to do with yeah. the ceilings Society. that we, yeah, we, we come up against. And they are very practical things like access to childcare, childcare being affordable, mm. childcare being appropriate. And healthcare. Exactly, healthcare. And, you know, so many mothers are let down by crappy co-parents, particularly men not showing up mm-hmm. for their families mm. and women's yeah. potential being limited by that. And it's yeah. a really, it's a very common rank form of misogyny and I just feel so I I feel so strongly protective of women's brilliance and mother's brilliance 
you know, I feel very passionate about our right to access education and employment, Mm -hmm. you know, and I get really cranky about other people getting in the way of us being able to achieve what we want to do with our lives. So it's really unfair and it's deeply sexist. Anyway, that scene, I was just like, fuck yeah, it's, and it's so, it's so real. And I've got so many stories of mothers whose children have ended up in out-of-home care because, fucking irony, because they couldn't get childcare to attend the children's court hearing and argue their case. And so then the children were removed. Explain to me the justice of this. I mean, it's just disgusting. The irony of that's it. It's disgusting. That's the situation that so many women are in, mm. or that you know end up having to agree to consent orders because they're heavily pregnant and trying to raise a toddler, and they literally don't have the spoons to resist. Mm. And that, and honestly, that's often why a lot of women will sign consent orders because they don't have the capacity to do anything other than agree. We mm-hmm. need to access to justice issues are really important when we talk about women with psychosocial disabilities. So the concept of access to justice is the idea that inequity means that not everyone has the same access to justice as each other. Mm-hmm. And it can be as practical as because of gender, women doing most of the childcare, and because of poverty, not having access to alternative forms of childcare, not being then able to attend a court hearing to defend their right to parent. I mean, the irony of like, I, I couldn't keep my child in my care because I was too busy caring. I mean, yeah. Fuck. Yeah. it's frustrating. When I say right to parent there, I'm using the wrong language. So I'll just go back and correct myself. So when I say a right to parent, What I'm actually trying to say there is a right to be treated equally as any other parent would be treated and a right to be supported to parent. So no parent, regardless of whether they're disabled or non-disabled, has a right to parent or has a right to a child. No one has a right to a child. We have responsibilities to children. We don't have rights to them. Children have rights. However, It's a bit more complex than that. The whole picture is that we are signatories to the Convention on the Rights of People with a Disability and Article 23 of the CRPD states very clearly, it's very black and white, that disabled parents have a right to support to parent. And it's very, very generous in the Convention. It's very broad, actually. It does state that the rights of the child are paramount, and that is as it should be. The rights of the child are paramount, should remain paramount. However, for a very long time in this country, the rights of the child being paramount have been used as a blank check for child protection workers to do whatever they see fit in regards to uh, children of disabled parents without any attempt at balance. The DDA talks about the balancing of rights and you can see that reflected in the CRPD. In the CRPD, there is protection of the preservation of the families of disabled parents, but that's not how we're doing child protection in this country. And it's really important that when we have conversations about how child protection work is being done in this country, we're really, really honest with ourselves about what is actually happening. 
because what is actually happening is there is no balancing of rights. Disabled parents are not supported to parent. We are judged, we are monitored, and we are subject to some of the highest removal rates in the country, second only to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander parents. So we can be doing a lot better in this country in terms of supporting disabled parents who do have a right to that support in the Convention on the Rights of People with a Disability, which we are a signatory to. It is the law, it's international law. We willingly signed that convention and yet we aren't doing it. So, you know, the Disability Royal Commission recommended the form formation of a Disability Rights Act. As someone who works in the child protection space, I think it is vital that we see the realisation of Article 23, support for disabled parents to parent, that we see this reflected in any DRA that is written because it is the law and we must follow it because ultimately what we are seeing is the mass removal of children from parents who are not given any support to parent whatsoever and that is illegal so yes when we talk about the right to parent what I'm actually saying is equality before the law and the right to support to parent. But generally speaking, parents have responsibilities to children. We don't have rights to children. I like how like I like how we see that struggle in the film because Yes, yes. I think particularly me as a parent, I really related like I've only got one kid and I have a partner, but you know, you relate to her struggle and you also relate to the fact that she's just doing what she can for her kids and then she sees other people struggling who need someone to support them the way that she is there to support her kids. But there's also that guilt of working and not being as available for her kids, but she has no other option because she needs to earn a living. But she is given pushback by George, who I actually don't like <laughs> in the film. Yeah, he's a bit of a dick. For not being there for her kids. But what is her alternative? Exactly. Someone's got to feed them. Like, there's so much criticism of working mothers at the same time as them not being able to access the means to work as well. There's no winning. As a single mum who, I mean, I have a pretty diverse dance card, but I study and do a bit of work and parent. My family is poor. I'm broke, you know. Um, I exist off scholarship money. Um, the work that I do is mostly pro bono because the women that I work for, they have no money to pay me. They are poor because mm. if they had the money to pay me, they probably wouldn't be in the position they're in. Mm. Uh, money yeah. is power in a mixed market economy. So with Erin Brockovich, the thing I related to most in the movie was her experience as a single mother. That was the thing I related to most was that and the way that you, you just work so hard all the time. Um, there's no mm. real rest. And, oh, man, there was a scene. There's a scene later in the film <laughs> where, like, she obviously also has so much mother guilt throughout it, right? Like, she's, yeah, you know, she's, she gives, like, her 
soul to that case and yeah uh, because she's so driven by what's right and wrong I really relate to that and there's a scene later I think where she's smoozing on the couch and her eldest son uh they're going out to get pancakes or something yeah yeah and he's reading mm. through the documents and she's like ah oh, you know I don't like I just organized those and he and he starts to ask her questions about Annabelle one of the children mm, yeah. has gotten um, cancer from the polluted, the polluted water. That's right. And it's such a beautiful scene. And I felt that scene in my soul as a, as a mm. mother advocate because her son realises for the first time the importance of what she's doing. Yeah, yeah. But in that, it's not like... The way that that scene is done, he realises the importance of the work she's doing, but there's still connection. It's not like, oh, hmm. well, these people are important and I'm not important. It's There's so much love that flows between them in that moment. He acknowledges her, she acknowledges him, and it's like the, you see the connection get stronger when he understands yeah. her a little better. And, and she, you know, it's just it's really beautiful. <laughs> I cried. <laughs> so sweet. His character in the film, he seems to be one of the more like annoyed by the fact that she's working all the time and wanting mum to be yeah, there more right. often, which is yeah. totally reasonable for a kid to feel. Yeah. But then he sort of understands that it's not that she's ignoring you and doesn't care about you. It's that she's also supporting this family who don't have someone to care about them, That's right. who needs someone in exactly. their corner, just like she's in his corner. He says, um, why can't her own mum get her medicine because yeah. her mum's real sick too yeah. yeah and look I will say I've had conversations like this with my own child I mean I keep my life pretty flexible so I'm pretty available to him but there has been times where I've had to finish a piece of work and it's been time sensitive mm. so in that scene I felt that because I experienced a lot of guilt often just, it's not like it's chronic or anything, but it's just at times where I have to focus on a matter, mm. particularly during meetings and stuff. And, it, you know, if it's a day where he hasn't been able to go to school or whatever and he's home with me and I'm still trying to work. I mean, I know a lot of parents went through this with COVID and they got a taste of what single mothers experience all <laughs> yeah. the time. But I do, I feel the guilt and it's like, oh, am I a bad mother because I'm working while he's with me you know am I and then I do stop put my feminist hat on and go do you know what his dad doesn't feel guilty for no me. you know I get on quite well with my co-parent at the moment hmm. he doesn't feel guilty for working he doesn't apologize for working and also my child doesn't expect him to mm-hmm. um so why do I feel guilty for working why do I feel guilty for having wants and needs and things that are important to me that are not my child. I actually think it's really healthy for women to be people who exist independent of their children. Outside of their child, 100%. Also for the fact that if you're not living what makes you happiest and being who you truly are, then you're not necessarily likely to be as good a parent to your kid as well. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. I think it's important to show your kid as well that this is what life is like there's other stuff going on not just parents and I thought that was really well that was really well done in the movie like that was an aspect of it where I was like Oof, that resonates like the tension between her and her older son mm. my little man has said to me what just once or twice he has said you know judgy things to me about me working 
<laughs> not that I'm like, I don't want to give the impression that I'm like a workaholic who like keeps him in a cage. Like, I mean, like just, <laughs> he's a kid. I mean, kids are inherently, uh, you know, ego driven. And that's yeah. a very healthy, yeah. it's a very healthy, it's a way that they, it's how human beings survive. It's how they need to be to get their needs met. Yeah. Exactly. That's right. And also, it is okay for kids to learn within reason and obviously it's to degrees. I'm not advocating that someone should ignore their child all day. It is okay and I think healthy for children to learn, especially of their mothers, that their mothers do also have other priorities as well. Not not instead of yes. them, but as well as them. As well as. Yeah. As well as. I think it is um, like my child is my first priority, right? Mm. And if he ever needed me, like needed me, I would be there. But then there are also times where I have needed to finish a very time-sensitive document for a court matter that, you know, if I don't do it, it could risk someone's child in their care. And that's really mm. important. And I have explained to him the importance of these things. And so, yeah, I... I, I felt that scene. <laughs> both, both the guilt but also the connection. And something that's been happening recently is so my child knows what I do for work. He knows what I'm studying. We've had some conversations recently. He He's nearly eight where he really realises, I think, not just what I do but why I do it. Mm-hmm. And he has started to articulate his own views and his own, like he's also, and I'm very proud of him actually, he's a very strong advocate for his peers at school. It has run him into trouble. Mm. Hard to relate. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's learning, unfortunately, as I have throughout my life, that advocacy, it can make you a bit of a target. And yeah. people do not like it when you speak up for rights. They don't. And I think that comes through in Erin Brockovich too, like you were talking earlier about difficult women. She's a difficult woman. <laughs> you know, she doesn't. She's a very difficult woman, you know. And, she doesn't um, present like the other lawyers and say the no, right thing. So that is actually true to life. She really does dress like that and then she really does swear that much. Yeah. And then when you see the other lawyer come in who's all professional, she doesn't get as much out of the clients and they don't like her and they want her to go away. So it's what works as well is... Um, being herself yeah and the relationship and feeling like relatable like I think my Instagram is where I do a lot of systemic advocacy stuff I mean it's my the my Instagram is probably only like three percent of what I do the public face of it but it is a really good connector I mean it's how we met and uh, a lot of people have found me through that who need help who need advice. Like I often give it advocacy advice. That is not an invitation for everyone to flood my I mean, you can send me questions, but if I don't respond, I could be parenting or trying to yeah. finish an assignment. So no offense intended. I do usually eventually get back to everyone. So I often do like five minutes of advocacy advice. Like, so someone, an example will be, I'll get a DM from someone being like, my ex has just said this. And I think maybe... He's, um, you know, accusing me of blah, and what do I do? And I'll be like, uh, download the DVR app, you know, start keeping a diary, start making notes, make sure you keep that diary where no one can find it who is not necessarily a safe person. Um, and I can give like little bursts of advice like that. And it's amazing how far 
just little bits of advice will go. But yes, like in the film, Erin Brockovich is a very difficult woman and I really relate to that. She's super stubborn. I mean, I read her as authority, but I'm pretty biased. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was, um, I had a look at the actual Erin Brockovich and apparently she has a learning disability, dyslexia. I'm just saying there's very, there's a lot of co-occurrence. A lot of overlap. There was a few articles that cited her as having ADHD, but I have not come across Erin actually no. saying this herself. But I, I definitely so see some, email her some and traits. Her <laughs> she probably wouldn't answer me after me saying that she has dodgy disability politics. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, but you do, mate. Um, anyway, so uh, oh, I think it's probably just, to be honest, she's the kind of person that I reckon if she sat down with people, adult autistics, who explained why that was endless, mm. she seems like the kind of person, to me, who loves learning, well, she... loves information and cares about justice. I don't. Yeah, I reckon yeah. that she's probably just on her own learning journey. Like I used to have some very ableist ideas yeah, as well. Yeah, 100%. Me too. Out of. Yeah, mm. totally. So she's probably just on that path. So, um, and I don't really, I'm not really into cancel culture. It's not for me. So nah. anyway, the Erin of the movie, not the real one, but the Erin of the movie, I do read her as very auty because she has the intense drive, the intense mm. focus. Yeah. It's like making something like your special interest. Yeah. And she leaves town for a few days to, to chase that information. Oh, hyper-focus, yes. Without yes. telling her boss. It's such a good de- <laughs> That series of scenes, I was like, wow, that is like the best cinematic depiction of hyper-focus I've ever mm. seen. So like hyper-focus, I mean, I feel like everyone knows what it is, but hyper-focus is like a deep state of focus and concentration that it's common to a few different types of neurodivergence, but people who have ADHD, people who are autistic, particularly have deep hyperfocus. Oh, it's, it's the best feeling. <laughs> it is basically where space and time fall away and it's just you and the subject matter. And it is such a deep state of focus. You get so much done. And my child is amazingly uh, good at, at deep focus. What I've tried to learn as an adult to kind of complement it is also learning some coping skills because hyperfocus is really hard on your mm. body because you kind of wake up after, you know, I might paint, I'm an artist as well, You might, I might paint deeply for four, four hours and then surface and I'm starving hungry and I need to pee and I'm freezing cold and then I get overwhelmed by everything and get irritable. So one of the things that I've worked on with myself and also with my child is kind of like, if you're about to want to approach an activity that you know you tend to hyper-focus on, do all your setup mm. first so that when you come out of it, you don't have like a mad hyper-focus hangover. Mm. So like eat something, drink a bunch of water, go to the loo, keep some warm layers on or take off hot layers if you need and just maybe let people know where you are. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So that if you drop out for a while, which our brains need to do, it's a way of regulating ourselves. When you come out of that state, you're not a mess. Mm, yeah, um, I feel like these are skills and wisdoms that like older or um, further down the track NDs can pass on to people who are just diagnosed or to kids. Mm. And like, I love that. I love that intergenerational sharing of wisdom. But back to Aaron Brockovich, because wow, I'm speaking. <laughs> so the movie depicts hyperfocus really well. I think it actually is a really good depiction of perseverance, mm. which is 
an autistic trait, which is, uh, I mean, people often speak about perseverance as a negative thing, but it's where you, it's like dog with a bone. It's mm. where you latch onto an idea or subject or something and you just keep going until it's solved. You just, yeah. you just go and go and go. And I once described to a colleague that, for me, this, this issue of trying to make life better for MD mums and their kids, and like Erin with the um, trying to solve that the Hinkley case, for me it's the mental equivalent of walking past a table where the tablecloth is on crooked mm-hmm. and needing to straighten it, needing to. That's kind of my life's work is straightening the tablecloth of injustice. Mm-hmm. And it is. It feels crooked. It feels... It feels wrong to me. It makes my brain feel itchy. And so I feel like I have to fix it. And, um, yeah, so my brain doesn't feel itchy all the time. I've learnt to pick smaller goals within it, like, a, mm-hmm. you know, little bits I can do at a time. Um, otherwise I'd just be constantly a mess. Yeah, I think you're right in that she will not stop until she will not take no for an answer. And every time Masri like throws mm. up a blockage, like, oh, we can't do that. She's like, why not? Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So she Exactly why. why? Wants to find yeah. a way. And the way her brain works, I think, figures out those ways more so than Masri who would have just given up. Yes. And actually I was thinking I've been the last couple of weeks I, I've been a, a little down just from um like just vicarious trauma stuff, but also oh just some recent crap experiences of um discriminatory attitudes and um oh, you know, just institutions flexing as they do. And, you know, it it takes a toll. I'm fine. Um, I just, I had to bump up all my self-care strategies. I hate that term, but still. (laughs) Something I've been thinking about a lot lot the last couple of weeks, and I, I was thinking about it in relation to the movie, is how, if you look at the whole arc of that movie, and while it doesn't necessarily reflect a totally realistic sense of what working on an issue is like, for instance, like that Hinkley issue, they were supposed to clean up the water, but in reality, in, in the actual Hinkley, the plume is still growing. And while all of the clients from that that real life case have now received payouts, some of them are very small, you know. So, you know, fiction and life are not necessarily the same. So, mm. grain of salt. But the main thing that I took from it was that, you know, people say persistence is key, and it's really, really true. And I think that something that autistic people are bloody great at is persisting Mm -hmm. not everyone loves us for it and in fact it's often been told to us as a negative trait Mm. but i would actually say that my ability to persist has probably kept me alive Mm. (laughs) um it's probably kept yep that's right it means that I keep the long view. Mm. I, I, I'm learning as I go how to pace myself, which is a really good skill to develop. And I'm learning that, like, this pro- I mean, this is probably my life's work, right? Like, mm. this is, I'm going to be working on this probably till I die. And that's fine. I'm very happy but with But I that think persistence is needed for change to happen. It doesn't just, you can't just do it for six months and hope yes. that change, long term change happens. It, it takes that persistence. That's right to be made it does it does especially when you are talking about a form of like so the the issues I work on when you're talking about a form of discrimination that is so uh Jordan Steele John said recently 
that the DRC has shown that ableism is everywhere mm. and that is so well said and I think that is especially true when we think about psychosocial disabilities. Mm. We police on the basis of behaviour so reflexively, so invisibly, so without thought it is so accepted as a form of discrimination because it is baked into every system we have and it is discrimination. And mm. so to root it out and boot it out, as I like to say, um, <laughs> is going to take decades. It's going to take a very long time and you need to be persistent because it's a, it's a maze. It's an interconnecting maze of mm. bias and discrimination. And I think one other thing that I like about Erin Brockovich and the message it says is there's power in numbers. Mm. She needed to get those 650 yes. people to mm-hmm. enable to enact that suit. And that yeah. really tells that I think that's a perfect explanation of why unions are so important. And why this is a matter. good segue to Amper. Yes. <laughs> so I heard the uh, spiel about Amper. Look, and we yes. would love new members. So Amper is the Australian Neurodivergent Parents Association. We're just getting set up. So it is what it sounds like, the Australian Neurodivergent Parents Association. And look, one of the key risks for neurodivergent parents is the fact that we are historically often socially isolated and um, under-resourced and as a result we're very easy to pick off systems pick us off so easily because we're isolated so the idea of um applying uh so i was uh like when i was um working in education i was a massive unionist i still am i'm up the unions and collective bargaining works collective action works a beautiful book by Sam Wallman, um, which is called May Your Members Be Unlimited, or I think this one's called, I'll have to look it up. Uh, it's a graphic novel. Um, my late friend, uh, Rebecca, lent it to me, so I guess I own it now. And she was a massive unionist, and I learned so much from her about unions. And so AMPA is essentially, even though it's technically an association, we call it the union, because it is a union of neurodivergent parents. And the entire idea of AMPA is safety in numbers. If you cannot divide us and isolate us, if we are a hive mind, we are so much safer and harder to pick off. Mm-hmm. We share resources, skills, go to meetings with each other, etc., etc. It's going to take us time to get up and going, um, but we'll be seeking grants. We'll be expanding. It is my goal and my dream to be national. And you know, my big goal is to have an AMPA delegate on every PNC in every school in Australia. So, mm-hmm. yeah, let's hope we we spread like a virus. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Um, and fingers crossed. I just want every MB mum to have the resources that she needs to be believed, to be supported, and to have her capacity expanded and scaffolded mm-hmm. through the love and power of community and and collective. And I'll make sure all the details are on the episode notes. So anyone who's interested in joining, 
can join up. It's free, I believe, at the moment. Is that right? It's free at the moment. And even if we do eventually have membership fees, it'll be like sliding scale as fuck. So, yeah. Is there anything else that that you um, wanted to say about Erin Brockovich that relates to your work at all? Um, No, not really. I, I will just say that I think that when you watch that movie and think about, you know, how it relates to being um, an advocate and an ND advocate. We're, re- we're good at the hustle. Mm. We are. Mm. And we are. We're good at the hustle. And we are really persistent people. This doesn't make us popular with people who don't like that. <laughs> but that's probably good. I, I'm not sure I want to be popular with mm. people. <laughs> and I don't like that. And if I could just add one thing that um, I mentioned earlier that I didn't like George, and I think, like, that sort of shows how single mums are great at hustling because it's what they have to do constantly all the time. And when George leaves her because he's annoyed that he's not getting anything while he's also trying to show that he's a good guy because he's not one of her other husbands. Oh, I know. You know, she's doing as much as she can for kids plus working over full time and he doesn't have a job and he's just being a parent and he's, you know, he's living with, he's he's getting fed by her, he's not having to work. Yeah. He's like, no, this is yeah. unfair on me. And he's just doing what every mother has to do plus less. So that really shat me I know. I know. <laughs> because I think we were supposed to like him. Yeah, exactly. That really annoyed me too because at one point she was doing his job. Yeah. And where was her thanks and praise? Where was her medal? Mm. Like, And that is that is the thing. It's like men do sometimes expect a medal for doing the things that we do. Without question. Invisibly without thanks. Yeah. So. He was a bit. Yeah. And apparently in real life, her ex-husband and her actual boyfriend, George, who was there at the time, accused yeah. her of having an affair with Masri and then tried to sue her. Yeah, I remember, yeah I've read that. For no actual reason. And then, like, it was dismissed and the lawyer who was involved was disbarred for extortion. So there were assholes. Well, like, George was a dick, it seems. Good things come to good people, don't they? <laughs> yep, just as it's. Um, yeah. Yeah, anyway, um, no, it's a good movie. It's a fun watch. It's not a realistic watch, but it's a fun watch. But at the same time, not a lot actual action happens. Like when you actually think about it, it's all like the legal case from beginning to end. So given that, yes. you know, it's actually quite entertaining and it, it did really well, that's pretty, yeah. pretty good for that kind of film. Yes, definitely. Before I let you go, I just want to say to everyone to make sure they follow your account, which is... Make sure I've got this right. S R I T A underscore studio. That's your Instagram. Yes. It's because my um there are so many people say to me, and I'm like, oh, so is your name Srita? And I'm like, no. My first name is Sarah, my second name is Rita, and I just put them together. So it's S it's S Rita, but I just I actually do say Srita Studio. Srita Studio. Um, yeah, that's what I, I do met, in my I head. Say it aloud. Yeah. Um <laughs> because your art is also incredible and amazing, and I love it so much. And um I don't know if this will go out before the giveaway finishes but people have the opportunity to win a piece of your art an original piece if they enter in the fundraiser for yellow ladybugs so definitely follow you yes oh uh, the one thing i was gonna say yes i do have one call to action <laughs> which is you know often people hear about all these issues and they're like oh my god what can i do it's so unfair yes it is at the moment one of the biggest things that you can do is to look at who's already doing work on these issues and support them. Yes. So if you have money, 
donating to advocacy organisations is really great, really mm. important. If you're a letter writer, uh, start conversations with your local MP. Like I, I really, people are very disillusioned about participating in, in politics I, and I really don't think they should be because it is action that does work. It does have results. I'm not into nihilism. It's not for me. So get involved mm. and, you know, whatever political party you belong to or don't belong to, however you align, things you can do is educate yourself. Like go on the DRC website, read their reports, just learn and just be aware in conversations about disability that it's all not not all created equal mm. and that we've learned from the DRC women with psychosocial disabilities particularly mothers particularly mothers of color are the worst off in the community and need the most backing mm. at the moment so that's where we should be really focusing our energies I feel yes 110 percent agree and I really really thank you so much Sarah for sharing all your experiences and advice and support and make me watch this great film again which I enjoyed watching again it was fun I had ice cream and chips and <laughs>